Hello, and welcome to the much-anticipated next episode of Real Atheology. My name is Ryan, and it's my honor to have recently been invited to join the Real Atheology team. In this episode, I'm joined by the one and only Ben Watkins, as we have a nice, long discussion with our special guest, Dr. C.M. Lorkowski, who is a professor of philosophy, who does some very interesting work, especially in the area of philosophy of religion. He's the author of a very nice book called Atheism Considered, a survey of the rational rejection of religious belief. Now, the primary focus of our time with Professor Lorkowski deals with a wide range of issues covered by his book, which we hope you'll find just as interesting as we did. So, let's get to it. Uh, welcome, Professor Lorkowski, and we really do thank you for making the time to come talk to us. And so, we just wanted to start out and Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and were you raised a theist, not a theist, and what got you into philosophy of religion? Uh, sure. First of all, thanks for having me. Um, I was raised Catholic. I probably didn't actually realize until I started studying world religions that I was a heretical Catholic and <laughs> leaning towards the wrong side of the Aryan controversy. But I started losing those beliefs and shifting towards uh, atheism in early college. Uh, if I had to explain why, I'd just say it was an inquisitive mindset is half of it. And the other part is just some of the things you're exposed to in college. And I don't just mean alternate viewpoints, but really my first world religion, world religions class more than anything is when you realize there's all these other religions out there that have just as good, which is to say just as bad, a claim on truth, and that we can actually give naturalistic explanations for a lot of the core central uh, theistic religious beliefs that are supposed to somehow be superior to other religions. And so from there, when you, uh, I think that reason and rationality favors atheism, obviously. And so from there, it was just an issue of doing the legwork. Was that hard with, like, family at all, or were your parents uh, understanding, or was that even an uh, issue? When I tell them, I'll let you know. Oh, okay, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what got you specifically into philosophy of religion, then? Was it just a continued interest in it, or? Uh, no, so uh, interestingly enough, it worked backwards. Uh, I started undergraduate college as a finance major. Oh, interesting. And I added a management major, and I had a philosophy minor, and I said, well, you know, philosophy seems like it could be kind of fun. And, and it was just a minor for fun, but then I ended up getting stuck as the president of the Religion and Philosophy Club my senior year. <laughs> and I real and before several of the discussion nights we had, I found myself having to explain a lot of background information. Uh, and I just said, "Wow, this is a lot of fun. I could get paid for doing this." And then I ended up pursuing philosophy, even though I finished my triple major. In terms of philosophy of religion, explicitly, there's there's kind of two reasons for that. One is just the interest in the subject matter. The uh, some of the work by William Rowe is really what, what really got me thinking, this is how philosophy should be done. Uh, this is how we get kind of max value out of it. And he was a philosopher of religion. Uh, but then the other issue is just to realize that 
philosophy of religion implicitly or explicitly seems to touch on almost every other field of philosophy because your metaphysical commitments about philosophy of religion are going to be deeply related to your commitments in metaphysics, in causation, into the Platonism, Aristotelianism debates, uh, in ethics, in philosophy of mind. And so it seems like first I had to get my philosophy of religion views sorted out carefully before I could even make any kind of headway on the other ones. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I relate to that so much. It's, it's philosophy of religion is such a great anchoring point for philosophy in general, because it touches on just so many different big questions and you've got to sort them all out before you can kind of piece that puzzle together. So it's kind of like an interesting framework to see all sorts of other different, really big questions in philosophy. And I hate to say it, but contrapositive kind of might apply as well, that when I've seen, for instance, very sloppy philosophy of mind, it seems connected to sloppy philosophy of religious beliefs, uh, etc. I totally agree. I think that's a... uh, (laughs) hits, Hits that nail right on the head. Yeah. So you said William Rowe was a big influence on you. Were there any other atheist thinkers that had a big impact on you? In undergraduate, uh, not not a whole lot. Um, so obviously, I guess I, the one short answer is David Hume. But beyond that, my undergraduate program was really not that rigorous, and so I didn't get exposed to a lot of figures during kind of that important shift in my life. Um, so my my interest and resonance with a lot of figures came after I've already made up my mind on a lot of these things, which is kind of a fun way to go. Sure, um, you know, have to just. You know, Stand on the shoulders of giants, I suppose. Right. Or looking back now, would would you say there are any uh, particular thinkers? If, on, we'll start with the atheist side. Who you now think are like some of the best defenders of atheism? So I imagine you'd probably still consider Roe to be in there, but yeah, Roe is up there, and uh, Paul Draper. We have to be really careful because he's an atheist in the capital T sense of atheist, but otherwise considers himself a cancellation agnostic. But I think, before I give any more names, let me pause there and say, uh, I think the best thinkers are the ones that do what Draper does, that that you do philosophy right. Your goal is to pursue truth. You don't start with a presupposition and then figure out what arguments can get you there. Instead, you know, we don't think of ourselves as atheist thinkers and theist thinkers. We think of ourselves as thinkers. And I think the people who do that end up uh, having much better caliber work. So that's one of the things I look for. The other thing is I think that the thinkers who stay grounded in the world, mm-hmm. uh, who are looking at testing of hypotheses rather than as abstract metaphysics, I tend to resonate a little more with. So I would all, uh, but uh, some other favorite uh, uh, atheistic side of thing, thing, thinkers, I might add, uh, Kai Nielsen, I really like a lot, and uh, Nicholas Everett, and um, Nicholas then, Everett is so underappreciated. I feel like there's, I, 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 I too sympathize with his work um, a good deal, and I, I just you don't ever really see him getting cited. I feel like he should because I feel like his work is really good. Yeah, it, it, it really is, and I wonder if maybe it's because his his kind of seminal book in the area he was he kind of set up his reactionary to. Swinburne's existence in God, and even though, even though it did so much more than that, I wonder if that's why it sometimes gets swept under the rug. 
But uh, more specific areas, uh, I do have some favorites as well. So when we're talking about using the sciences in cosmology, uh, I like Oppy, Problem of Evil, I like Draper, uh, Naturalization, I like uh, Dennett. And just so we're clear, so not all biologists do terrible philosophy. I also like David Sloan Wilson's uh, Darwin's <laughs> Cathedral. I really like that one a lot. Uh, Arif Ahmed, I love his stuff on miracles. Well, I wish he'd do more of it. But well, So those are some of my favorites. And you make a good point there about the goal should be just to be thinkers in general and not really to take a side. But that kind of leads into a question I have regarding those who would consider themselves theistic philosophers, or at least go by that title. But do you, do you see much of a difference between, say, what we might call theistic philosophers and professional apologists? So can, can you... I, I don't mean to be Weasley, but can you say more about, about what you mean by professional apologists? Do you mean people who go on tours, people who write books, or people who seem very apologetic uh, in their uh, defenses of theism within philosophy? Yeah, no, I think that's fair. So just a little, I'll add a little personal touch here. So I, I actually grew up uh, in a Christian home, and I was particularly interested in, um, I actually went and got a biblical studies degree first. And one of the things I was interested in was trying to understand why I believe what I believe. Um, and so I got what probably pretty deep into the apologetics area. So I'm thinking of people, yeah, who write specifically in defense of the faith. And even now there are degrees that you can get in apologetics. So I'm thinking of people like Frank Turek. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. Um, but, but yeah, they go on speaking tours, they write books and, their job, I guess, more or less, is to defend the faith against attacks or arguments. Uh, some others are Lee Strobel, J. Warner Wallace, um, Sean McDowell. Uh, these are all people. R.C. Sproul. Yeah, R.C. Sproul. The late R.C. Sproul. The late Ravi Zacharias, those kind of you fellows. Norman yeah, Norman Got. Yes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So those are the guys I'm thinking okay. of. You've got some people. Yeah, I, I wanted to make sure before I spouted off something. <laughs> yeah, there, there's some that <laughs> no, that's a fair the, question. There's some that are on the fence, you know, like William Lane Craig. You know, he, he does work both in high-end philosophy, but also does a lot of apologetics work. So I hope that clarifies a little bit. Sure. So yeah, the original question is, do I see a difference in the work? Yeah, just is there much of a difference between yeah. uh, people who would just theistic philosophers in general? Um, is there much of a... I'm, I'm sure there's... there's a, obviously a big gap between like new atheists and people like Roe and Oppie. Right. And so do you, do you notice a similar gap? between apologists and professional uh, theistic philosophers of religion? Yes, definitely and for sure. So I, I haven't read all of the names you have mentioned, but I've read enough to know I think what you're talking about. Um, there, there's, there's kind of a certain point at which if I get to something that's just wildly poorly, sloppily argued, I just put the book down uh, because I just know that it's absolutely wasting my time. Uh, this has happened with uh, the, the the Giesler Turek book. I mean, it was so off the wall. The I Don't and, Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist book? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just I know how uh, you feel. Just yes. like this, this, yeah, this gross assumption that atheists can't have ethics and just all of these very, very, very obviously bad arguments. Now, here's a question. 
are they bad arguments that they know are bad or are they bad arguments uh, that they don't know are bad? And I think what is indicative of the apologists is you can't tell because it, it seems to be a work of passion and just maybe trying to you know put some uh, a philosophical equivalent of a t cheap tuxedo over it. But there's just, there, there, there's clearly just nothing there um, that an atheist naturalist needs to take seriously. And, and I think it's important to recognize that. So in, in, my, uh, in my book, I made a distinction in terms of what is it, what it uh, in the cosmological argument specifically, what does it take to be a persuasive argument? And I use that term technically as one an opponent needs to take seriously. Uh, and you just don't find that in in those types of works. Now, William Lane Craig is an interesting kind of in-between, but we had a very long talk about this in my PhD program. We were kind of talking about whether you could still be a philosopher with that mindset was the actual question. And what some of the members of our philosophy of religion reading group were very vocal in saying he basically turned in his philosophy card. But notice that has nothing to do with the caliber of his work. It has to do with well, what is our goal? And if your goal is anything but the pursuit of truth, I feel like you're not doing philosophy. And uh, whatever you're doing, it might be of the highest caliber and interesting, but if you are not pursuing truth, you're not doing philosophy. Now, why was this so debated then? As well, it's not clear that Craig isn't pursuing truth. Craig it might just be too paternalistic in realizing or in worrying that his followers aren't trusting where they should be trusting and are trusting where they shouldn't be. And so that doesn't necessarily take away from his claim, uh, his claim in the pursuit of truth. But the, the really important thing there, and the reason I bring it up, is because there's this disconnect in terms of uh, what a professional philosopher is doing and what an apologist is doing, and the latter's primary interest is their readers' beliefs, whereas I think the the philosopher's primary interest in should be their own beliefs. Now, you said we don't really need to take seriously some of the apologists' work when they're, like you kind of said, particularly bad or egregious. Do you think there's As a challenge to your own beliefs? Sure, sure. Yeah, I was going to ask. Do you do you think there's still merit in engaging them since they have so much influence? It's going to sound like a Weasley answer, but a lot of these types of questions have to do with what is your goal? What is the audience? Mm -hmm. um, if the audience are a bunch of people who think the way that they do, who aren't willing to engage the arguments as indicative of truth and that we believe conclusions based on whether they follow from premises, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that's not the kind of conversation you have with somebody who is kind of putting a, a reason in the backseat uh, compared to other considerations. Mm -hmm. Um, now, are there contexts in which it would be helpful to engage them? Uh, sure. Uh, for instance, if the audience is uh, more open-minded people, a mixed group, et cetera. So I don't, uh, but on the, on the flip side, I don't think it would be beneficial to have, say, a debate with them in front of a bunch of uh, philosophy graduate students either, because uh, it, would be very, it would be very similarly one-sided. I see, yeah. Uh, in terms of written engagement of their work, it depends on where it's published uh, for almost the same reasons. Okay. Yeah. There's actually a passage from your, uh, your book that I, if you don't mind, if I read it real fast, just one last thing about the apologists here. 
you uh, say in, in uh, your book, we can then explain away their continued beleaguered defense as a need to maintain these arguments simply based or simply because they support theism. Such reasoning would be culpable in that to defend as an argument simply because you agree with the conclusion is the opposite of critical thinking and represents deep and irredeemable bias. So if the theist defends an indefensible argument, this implies some intellectually inappropriate behavior. Either they are blinded by their own preference and perceive the argument as much better than it is, or their goal is simply to defend theism at any cost, even to the point of defending arguments known to be flawed as post hoc justification. So would you kind of say that that describes professional apologists? Uh, So so I'm I'm going to answer that question, but I do want to clarify to your theistic listeners. Sure. Uh, When I I ask the question, do we have good cause to think that theists are doing this? Mm -hmm. Uh, My general answer is sometimes, but usually not. That it's much more complicatedly involved with worldviews than specifically defending bad arguments. Now, to the professional apologists, uh, I've... I hate to overgeneralize, but it, it, it's it's you're kind of in a dilemma because either uh, again, just looking at some of those really, really, really bad arguments and stereotypes, you cannot interpret them charitably because either they are being just incredibly impervious to notions of critical thinking and logic, or they are doing something where they know it's a bad argument and yet they're putting it forward anyway. So you either have to question their morality or their acumen. And so nothing you say here is going to make them look good or respectable. But I I will say a a little bit more specifically. First of all, I know that defending false arguments does happen uh, when it comes to evolution debates. Uh, There have been ones who have admitted to using arguments they knew to be bad, data they knew to be bad, etc., And so given that, it makes me think that the primary goal of some of these other ones that have really, really, really bad arguments is persuasion, just like the sophists that Socrates talks about in the Apology. But I think that that's sometimes. I think that there really are also cases where one of two other things happen. One, they sincerely believe their conclusion and then just adopt a ends justify the means strategy. And... That's not unique to apologetics. Uh, I think that sometimes you see that in philosophy of religion as well. Paul Draper has a really good uh, article about that, about partisanship in philosophy of religion. Uh, I actually have that article up with me uh, up right now. It reminded me of that. I'm sorry. I know I'm interrupting you, but uh, this conversation reminded me of that article, and I just pulled it up. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's awesome um, that you just mentioned it. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think the other issue, and something I do get into a little bit in my book, is just you have to think in terms of worldviews, that beliefs are not isolated, they're a, bi- they're a product of a whole lot of stuff, and we don't have this gatekeeper theory of mind where here's an argument and the gatekeeper decides whether it's a good one or not. Uh, that's just not how it happens. Rather, who we are determines what we accept as evidence. Sure. And so I have no doubt that there are people who think that those arguments are good arguments and think that they are presenting a real view of reality as well. So I guess um, my short answer is uh, I think it takes all kinds and I don't want to overgeneralize beyond. No, that's fair. And I I do think you made a really good point earlier about, well, uh, in terms of Craig, that it might be the case that the apologist tends to support almost any argument favoring God just because if 
they might feel it's their responsibility to, I don't know if I want to say flock, but the people who rely on them, maybe. So that could be something that biases them to favor more arguments than they should. Well, and everyone is on their own journey. You know, they just are where they are in their journey. And what gets a lot of people into philosophy of religion is that they are theists, is that they participate in religious forms of life, and those religious forms of life uh, bring them into contact with these questions. And so they try to grapple with, so they're trying to understand a broader um, goal of philosophy and how to think just within the context of these questions. And they they just are on the side, um, you know, it's like a web of different beliefs, and they're, you know, working their way through them and modifying certain ones and um, taking on certain others and trying to make everything coherently fit. And so if you believe you are a theist, if you accept theism, when you're, you know, participating in that philosophical activity, you're trying to make everything kind of cohere with that. And maybe, you know, for some of us, we get to a point where we just go, okay, we, we can't cohere this. And those t- Tensions just shift us into the other camp. And and, and before we move on, I, I really want to emphasize, you know, and the audience should really pump on their brakes because we've been talking a lot about apologists, but the fact is there are plenty of dogmatic atheists out there too. That's fair. Uh, and this is a great and, segue. Yes, it is actually. <laughs> uh, but you know, our, but the proper mindset always should be to pursue truth wherever it leads us. And your goal in philosophy is to care more about truth than what the particular truth is. Right. And uh, I think that sometimes uh, if you get too vested in things besides truth, that makes things a lot harder, uh, not just in terms of sloppy philosophy, et cetera. But uh, if you talk about losing your religious belief, if you have made that the center and focal point of your life, right. that's that's going to be a really hard belief to shake. Uh, or even more specifically, if you took that to such a degree that you're an apologist and you're paid to defend those beliefs, and all of a sudden you're starting to question them. Uh, and so we could really talk about you know, defense mechanisms of beliefs and trying to right. isolate and insulate, et cetera. But yeah, we should we should always pursue truth. And I, I know we're we're moving on a little bit, but just can I can I go back to one other question that I didn't finish answering? Absolutely. Absolutely, please. Please talked yeah. about well it will just in in name in, in terms of what we're just talking about. We talked about my favorite non-believer philosophers, but uh, we didn't actually get to talk about some of the good believer ones that are out there. And so they're out there too. I, I like I like Robert Audi quite a bit. I like Charles Tulliver. Uh, R.M. Adams does some great stuff. And I, I won't say Swinburne generally, but Swinburne's The Existence of God is really kind of a magnum opus on the theistic side. Uh, and so just if if you are genuinely interested in these matters, Read everybody. Don't don't just read one side. Don't just read refutations. Right. Uh, you know, read, read all your philosophers and religion. Don't yeah, that's, create straw men. Create steel men. Right. Have those particular guys had a big impact on you from the beginning, or were they more people you came across later after you uh, had done your graduate work? So Adams is an interesting case because he does some uh, fantastic history of philosophy, and so I was actually exposed to his work through. 
uh, his book on Leibniz, but it kind of made me more interested in some of these areas of philosophy of religion that I hadn't really uh, gotten that far into. Swinburne, uh, by turning things into total evidence and uh, probabilities, um, made was one of these ones, uh, these philosophers of religion who's theistic, but I feel is speaking, having the same conversation. Uh, whereas sometimes, like with some of the analytic Thomists, you just, you feel like they're just not having the same discussion as theists. And so, you know, I, I, that's very important. But but both Audi and Tulliver, um, it's, it's interesting because... Uh, their writings reflect their personalities, right? They're very friendly and they're very easygoing and they're perfectly happy to have a serious discussion with people who disagree with them. It actually reminds me of uh, Rowe on the atheistic side and just uh, a lot of their philosophy is you know, kind of friendly towards their opposition uh, and is more interested in teaching and pursuing truth and good ideas than uh, getting up on a stump and shouting. Right. And I think seeing that kind of exposure on both sides, uh, I think makes you a better philosopher because before you go and call all theists idiots, you need to think of those people and say, no, no, that's not right. <laughs> right. These are colleagues. These are, these are very good people. These are very smart people. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's excellent. Now you had mentioned before about there being dogmatic atheists, which I completely agree. Um, and that as Ben pointed out, that was a good segue into just, Maybe you could give us a brief overview of what you think the societal impact from the new atheists are. Like, do you, do you think anything good came out of that, or was it mostly negative? And and maybe what are the main differences between sort of the new atheist movement and what I don't know what we might call classical atheism? That's actually that might be a technical term. Fair. Traditional. Traditional. Okay, fair, fair, yeah. Sure. Uh, so first of all, uh, with new atheism, there are obvious bads and obvious goods. And we should always look at both sides, uh, or I should say look at the totality. We should always look at both sides. But uh, some, here's some good things that came from New Atheism. There's a danger, um, and just from a purely historical sociological standpoint, uh, there's a danger that occurs when dangerous ideas are treated as legitimate. If, if you've never read it, uh, Sartre's Portrait of an Anti-Semite, I think, is one of the most valuable pieces of philosophy there is, where he's trying to understand that what kind of mindsets led to the Holocaust. Um, but at the beginning, I think he says something that really resonated with me, that he wasn't going to call anti-Semitism an opinion, because then it would be protected by freedom of opinion. And I think that New Atheism was really good at kind of drawing attention to the fact that you don't have to respect all ideas, that in fact, respecting all ideas is dangerous and leads to dangerous things. Uh, and some religious ideas, uh, uh, religious dogma are horribly harmful and potential for a lot of damage and negative consequences. And, uh, you know, kind of letting somebody get up on a stump and sneer at those, uh, I, I think there's some value in, in realizing, hey, some ideas are sneer-worthy, and uh, if they're ideas that are going to get a lot of people harmed or killed, that's something that you shouldn't be polite and you know put your soft gloves on and everything. So I think, I think that's valuable, uh, maybe not to the extreme and ways they did it, but the, the more general notion is, 
it, sometimes responding in those ways is the right move. Um, sometimes the gloves do need to come off. I, I also think it's important to remember that um, atheists are an oppressed minority. And when you find yourself in an oppressed minority position uh, with hate crimes and with uh, incredibly disparate representation by the government and things like that, that, that sometimes you need a voice and sometimes that voice needs to uh, you know, exaggerate and get people's attention. Uh, so I think those are good things. Uh, the bad things, of course, is they've just given license to the worst kind of theism uh, that, well, if, uh, if, if we overgeneralize, if all of a sudden people think that that is the typical atheist view, then, then the vitriol that they uh, heap upon atheists is permissible and perhaps continuing to oppress them is permissible. Uh, and seeing their views as dangerous is permissible, and uh, so so I think that kind that aspect that when you're you're licensing these these bad kind of treatments and you are taking away common dialogue and you're empowering religious extremism, that's the really bad part. Uh, yeah. So uh, in in terms of which outweighs the other, I would say just because of the way society's trending. Uh, that the bads outweigh the goods, that we were already in a position where atheists can speak their piece, uh, especially against dangerous ideas, without having to worry too much about it. But if it had happened 100 years earlier, I would not have, I would not say the same thing. I think if, if new atheism was around, uh, Russell wouldn't have lost his job in New York, right? So, Yeah. Do you have any advice for, you know, because new, new atheism has kind of had its effect and it has kind of, you know, the rise of internet atheism, and there's a lot of uh, very fruitless arguments that happen, obviously, on the internet, as so many crazy things do happen on the internet. But do you have any advice for atheists and agnostics kind of moving forward, kind of maybe giving a better picture, or kind of recovering from some of the negative effects of new atheism? So, so obviously, uh, advice depends on goals. Uh, sure. If your goal is conversion, it's very different than if your goal is... Uh, trying to get theists to not stereotype atheists. Uh, I think the biggest, most important part is, and this is the good part about internet atheism, by the way, is, is forming a community in terms of uh, not seeing atheists as outliers. Uh, numbers are definitely trending in our direction. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, kind of focusing on our shared experiences in terms of, again, just, just building a community. If we want to if we want to have dialogue with hmm, uh, theists, which I absolutely think we should, um, then it's probably helpful to do things like focus on common ground, but also focus on uh, the harms of religion. But either way, you have to make an effort to understand theism, and I think that's kind of the part of the pun, cardinal sin of the new atheists is mm -hmm. very often they just do not make an attempt to understand theism. Uh, instead, judging it by its worst members, yeah, etc. Um, now, on on this note, see if you have this one open. Uh, Louise Anthony's "Philosophers Without Gods" is, is is a fantastic resource if you want to feel some kinship and community, okay. uh, as well as some interesting food for thought. It just several <clears throat> out atheist philosophers are just describing their their experiences and. 
Uh, sometimes they're conversions. Uh, and it's just a, just a fun little piece. Excellent. Well, speaking of books, then um, let's uh, talk about your book, Atheism uh, Considered. And um, I mean, kind of in the line of what we've been talking about with the new atheists, you know, a lot of their books had a very polemical focus. They were pretty, pretty hard on the opposition um, in their addressing of, of theism and such. But uh, you, you wanted to, it seems, specifically write a book that was much more uh, friendly and free of, of that. So, you know, while laying out a very sophisticated case for maybe a, a reasonable atheism and such, uh, can you kind of just give us a background on why you wanted to write such a book or um, what sort of the motivation was for you to to put this book into the works? Sure. I, I got into philosophy, first of all, to teach philosophy. And I think teaching people how to think is drastically more important than teaching them what to think. If you teach people how to think about these matters, then they will get to the conclusions that are true on their own, right. uh, which on a book on atheism means Probably, obviously, any belief I hold, I hold it because I think it's true. Right. Uh, and, and in that sense, again, uh, William Rowe was a big inspiration to me. He was always a teacher first. But I, I certainly I want to add a, a, a few more things that kind of try to distance myself from the new atheists. One, we're all irrational. Uh, there is no one who is 100% rational in every aspect of their life. And, it, it, and even if... Uh, certain religious beliefs are irrational. That's that's not enough to dismiss a person or even to dismiss their beliefs. Uh, we have to be much more careful than that. And uh, related to that, we all know some really smart theists. Uh, it would be really silly to call them stupid. Right. Uh, and we all know theists that we love too. Um, <laughs> and you know, just uh, imagine talking to someone who you respect and maybe even that you love and telling them they're an idiot is is really just dissonant. It's a cognitive dissonance. But then adding to kind of the teacher first approach, uh, I was actually teaching uh, or I was going to teach an atheism course that was both listed as an upper division philosophy course and as a religion course. And just uh, it was really hard finding a textbook that treated both of them and treated them both well. Mm. Uh, and so uh, I know that this podcast focused more on the former, but I did want to uh, write a text that covered both, which means I was writing a text that could theoretically be used as uh, an introductory text for a mid-level uh, course as well. So it'd be pretty silly to uh, write it in any way, but one that is friendly to the reader, regardless of their <laughs> uh, religious belief. Right. Um, but then lastly, uh, something I kind of picked up after the course is I just, uh, again, going back to what I mentioned about some of the experiences of atheists I know or, or their accounts I've read about is we just need more tolerance in this country. Sure. And tolerance begins in understanding. And so uh, I made this text written more towards a theistic audience just for that goal. And as a result, I had to present it. Uh, from common ground and from in kind of an understandable way, but at the same time, try to convey that atheists do have good and rational reasons. Uh, atheists do have good and rational reasons for their beliefs. Right. That's great. And I, I, one last thing, and I, and I don't mean this as a, as a dig of some of my philosophy of religion colleagues, but I'm really interested in the actual reasons for belief. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think once you get way too far into a whole lot of the metaphysical assumptions 
that you just you you lose some of that. I like to stay. I like to stay in the trenches. I, I like to be where belief is is formed uh, and considered, rather than all of the kind of harder upper echelon metaphysics related. So I like to start with experience. Sure. Now, uh, specifically in kind of the the beginning of the book, I noticed in in uh, the section considered non-belief, you're pretty careful to define what you mean by the term atheist, and it seems fairly recent. I don't know how far back the debate goes, but it at least seems to be a lot more prevalent these days to see debates about the term atheist, not only between theists and atheists, but even between different camps of self-described atheists. So the, the sort of what you might call lack theism view versus not theism or believing there are no gods. What are your thoughts on, on that debate? Is it a useless debate? I mean, uh, or do you notice it much? Uh, these debates between what how we should define atheism um so do i notice it yes uh do i i, I don't put a lot into it and i'm going to make that sound a lot worse i'm uh, sorry a lot less bad than it just did <laughs> no, is it's fair is, is again it goes back to the context of a discussion if you are having a discussion with a, a theist or at least a supernaturalist as this book is intended to be uh, then we don't need to make that kind of distinction necessarily. Uh, and doing so might not help things, but but at the same time, is it important? Yeah, in some ways, just like you don't want to stereotype uh, theists, lowercase t, uh, and theists, capital T. Yeah, we should, we should always be careful to commit people only to what they are committed to, and distinct terminology can help that. Sure. Uh, in my sidestep of that has always been to just say atheist naturalist, uh, which kind of covers both the lackeyism and the not theism. Sure. Uh, so uh, I, I think I think those distinctions can be meaningful. Uh, and I think in the right context, those discussions are useful. I think when you're having a debate with uh, uh, so what I, what's usually called the God debates, just the kind of big pick, uh, is there some sort of higher power or not? I think that that distinction is not in, as important yeah, because you're just describing what is true rather than what you are. Yeah, would you say there's a difference? So you mentioned uh, atheist naturalist, and you use that term a lot. Is there a difference to you, or in the way you're using that, between an atheist naturalist uh, and just a naturalist, or is that just more of a matter of emphasis? So yes, in two ways. Uh, first of all, one of the reasons I do that is because uh, there's different notions of theism, uh, sure. and if you define theism as a god of all the omnis, then, well, for instance, a lot of Jews are atheists. And, well, that's that's clearly not what I mean. And so I want to say something more forceful than that. Um, but, but the second part of it is, very similarly, uh, naturalism itself has a whole lot of different meanings. Uh, and so there's metaphysical naturalism, epistemic naturalism, scientific naturalism, ecological naturalism, Philosophy of mind, naturalism, ethics, naturalism, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, all of that stuff. It's a big so, umbrella. Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, you know, Audi kind of lumps those all together as uh, philosophical naturalism. It's stipulative. The reason I'm stipulating my definitions is because I want to be clear about commitments. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong in just using those phrases if people know what you mean. Uh, it's just that's not always the case. Gotcha. One last thing with the, the the idea of atheism here. How how would you 
respond to, or would you recommend maybe skeptics respond to the the common charge, at least from again, sort of the apologists and the maybe lay atheist side that. Uh, you might hear a lot that atheism is a religion or that it is also equally faith-based. Um, again, not to bring up Turek again, but, you know, he wrote the whole book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. But that seems to be, a, at least on the lay side or the more lay side, that seems to be a pretty common charge uh, is that, you know, you're, you're a religion too or you have blind faith. I don't know. Do you have any recommendations of how to respond to that? Or Yes, but but there's, there's a couple things to say. One... That's a fallacious inference in two ways. Mm-hmm. First of all, we do grant that there are dogmatic atheists, sure, right, right. Uh, but we never judge a group by its worst members. That's a hasty generalization. Right. Um, the second thing I'd add is, uh, you know, there's two ways I've heard this criticism. I've heard basically scientism, what I later called cult scientism view, uh, and people calling science a religion. Uh, and then I've also heard the, I'm not certain about X, therefore I don't have a good reason to believe X. Um, that, well, you can't be certain there's no God, therefore you're being dogmatic. So mm-hmm. uh, that, depending on which one we're talking about, kind of depends on how you deal with it. But but the latter is clearly fallacious. Uh, it, is, it is a fallacy to say, <laughs> I'm not certain of X, therefore I don't know X. Right. Uh, we're evidentialists. And... And so that, that's kind of the second fallacy of the version I mentioned. In terms of the science is the new religion, I, I think that's, that's the one where it's a point taken for the people who do believe that, but I think that very often it's, it, it's people being careless with language, that people mistakenly uh, give the impression that their, their view that well, the only truths are scientific truths is just a stipulation or a dogma rather than... Well, uh, rather than a much more complex story that when religion runs into science, it is lost. And, uh, you know, you can add in several more premises of, well, I I don't have good reason to think science would answer everything. I just don't have any, (laughs) I just don't have any examples of things uh, that I've learned outside of sciences, at least in a sense. And so I think my advice, so my advice for the latter is, before, uh, you know, this is something I tell my interest students. Before you accuse anyone of fallacious reasoning ever, make sure you understand their view. If they are defending scientism in the pernicious sense, yes, criticize them. They're imbeciles. You know, that's, 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 yeah. Uh, that is to turn uh, science into to not just a religion, but to uh, a dogmatic fundamentalist religion, and we ought not do that. But more often, just be very clear about what you're committed to say about. Uh, the sciences, etc. Now, that book specifically, uh, I, I don't think that actually connects as well to this point because uh, it seems to be trying to argue that atheism is very, 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 very unlikely, and people believe it anyway, and that's why it has to be faith-based. Right. It's just it fails so badly to do that. <laughs> question-begging cosmological arguments, question-begging design arguments, it uh, mm-hmm. saddles atheists with bizarre beliefs like... Uh, Atheists must believe that anything goes, morally speaking. And so that book specifically, I would just set that one aside from the more interesting discussion. (laughs) That's fair. Well, I mean, you've already kind of touched on this, but in particular, you talk about certainty being basically an unrealistic uh, standard to, uh, to go after, and that basically we're not very certain of many things that we believe. But yet, it seems that a lot of atheists and theists, at least in, again, sort of that popular, you know, the more lay level, they seem to 
equate knowledge with certainty. And maybe you could just explain a little bit more why that isn't correct. Sure. So first of all, fortunately, this is not an epistemology podcast, but I will say (laughs) that uh, I think that truth is objective. Uh, I think that knowledge is actually a human construct, so it has a little more wiggle room. And so uh, I'm going to preface my comments with that. But what ends up happening is uh, people equate practical or moral certainty with certainty. Right. In a more absolute sense. And knowledge really tends to only ever engage the former. The, The example I always give when I'm trying to convince people there's nothing wrong with inductive reasoning, you're not certain the sun will rise tomorrow. No one is, no one can be. Right. So if if you really want to if you really want to say that doesn't count as knowledge, well, I don't know the sun is going to rise tomorrow. There's a sense in which I know what you mean, mm-hmm. but there's an important sense at which knowledge is a human construct and it's kind of communicative, and you're using it in a way that most people don't. Use it. Other examples, uh, I want to say I know my parents are who they say they are, mm-hmm. uh, and yet. We don't have certainty uh, without violating any laws of nature. We can imagine complex scenarios that uh, could undermine that belief. But mm-hmm. it's uh, so I think I think that start with the fact that knowledge is a human construct. And if people agree that they know the sun will rise tomorrow, that means certainty is not required for knowledge. And Instead, you just kind of have to reorient your your views about beliefs. And if you don't want to talk about knowledge, don't talk about knowledge. You, you're you're perfectly capable of having all these conversations, uh, just restricting your language to things like belief, all right? Justified belief, probable, <laughs> probable beliefs, etc. Right. Well, going with that, then basically on the section and evidence over faith, um, and you've mentioned this already, uh, your commitment to evidentialism. Uh, at least in a broad sense. Could you kind of explain why evidentialism in particular is important to our beliefs? And then kind of along with that, I don't know if you've had much exposure to like uh, people who take a more presuppositional approach. Um, if you are familiar with that, how would you approach a theist who takes a presuppositional approach or or perhaps uh, even like someone like Planninga who, who thinks that God belief is uh, properly basic? Do you have sort of a, some thoughts about uh, that? Sure. I, 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 when you say the presuppositional approach, are you talking about presuppositional apologetics, uh, presuppositionalism? Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so, first of all, yes, I'm an evidentialist in the broad sense. Uh, that's just the view that one should only believe things based on adequate evidence. And, of course, right. you can talk to an epistemologist about what accounts for adequate evidence. But notice that uh, in the book, nothing to do with... Uh, I'm not indicating anything to do with epistemic responsibility, kind of in a Clifford sense of where we must only believe that which is justified. It's it's simply because we act based on beliefs. And mm-hmm. I think that part of your moral responsibility to others, uh, if, if you are taking an action that has a potential to harm someone, then you have a responsibility to the people who are potentially harmed to ensure that you have good reasons for that belief upon which you intend to act. And... Um, so, so, so for me, evidentialism is in a sense moral. If you're, you know, going to let children die because of your anti-vaccination proclivities, maybe you should look at the science on it instead of just uh, going through. I think that's that's a requirement. We have a duty in that sense. Now, obviously, then presuppositionalism 
<laughs> contradicts that. So that's a, I take that as a big mark against presuppositionalism. But it's just based on kind of this obviously false assumption that we can't make any sense of the human experience without Christianity. Um, it's historically false. Think of all the pre-Christian people who didn't have much trouble with it. Uh, but it's also dangerous, and uh, and kind of there's this uh, good for the goose, good for the gander response that you're just giving license to anyone to believe anything they want, uh, and that's kind of the faith based in the bad sense I was contrasting mm -hmm. uh, in the text. And then I believe you asked me about yeah, planning it and sort of the properly yeah, basic approach. So, yeah, so so plan, remember I mentioned I kind of am. Uh, I feel like I'm having the same conversation of philosophy of religion with Swinburne. I generally don't feel that way about Plantinga, and I, I feel that so many of his assumptions I just reject. Yeah. Um, but I will say a few more words about this particular one. So let's assume it can be properly basic. If so, the, the defeaters of religious experience that I talk about in chapter 15 would still apply. No one thinks properly basic, well, no one should think properly basic beliefs are indefeasible. Mm -hmm. Craig actually has a pretty good discussion on that. But if we somehow say that it's a defeater, defeat, a defeater, that is, you know, the presence is so powerful that it is immune to defeaters, then, then it's just faith in a cheap tuxedo. Which, again, I don't think, I don't, I don't want to say Plantinga says that, but, but people who have said that in kind of Plantinga's name. There's, there's a couple other kind of philosophically interesting things to throw in here. There, there's a really interesting t uh, talk, uh, APA talk, I think it became an article, by Eric Baldwin, who points out that uh, Islamic thought has just as good a pedigree for something very similar to the census divinitatis. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, if that's true, <laughs> then uh, planning has got a pretty serious problem. Mm -hmm. uh, since, he, since he ties his specifically to the Holy Spirit that Islamic thought denies. Right. Um, but I, but I think probably the most important one is just that there's such disanalogies with other properly basic beliefs that uh, you know you're you're talking about a, a belief that is uh, generally personal but arrived at inferentially and properly basic beliefs just don't tend to be like that. Mm. I might arrive at a belief that somebody else tells me through inference, but not about my, uh, whether I see a lamp in the room or not. Sure. Um, and then related to that, there's just kind of this, you know, that uh, again connects with some of the criticisms of religious experience, this internal awareness of an external being. Uh, it's, again, just a disanalogy with the kind of things we trust as properly basic because externality uh, usually requires an inference of some sort. Right. Now, kind of going along with the evidence part, I don't know, well, you mentioned Hume in uh, your book uh, in kind of proportioning your uh, beliefs to the evidence, which I think I would agree is good advice. And I'm sure you're probably familiar with Sagan's maxim, uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Are you familiar with that? Um, it's not actually <laughs> his. He just uh, modified the wording and made it popular. Yeah, who, who's yeah. the original person who said that? Uh, uh, as far as I know, it was Laplace. Uh, he used strangeness uh, instead of extraordinary. Okay. Well, the reason I bring it up is... It's a little catchier. Yeah, yeah. The, the reason I bring it up is um, there's been a bit of a contention, I think. I don't know uh, if you see it much, but I know Craig specifically has sort of uh, criticized this claim and specifically seems to deny extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Um 
do you think he's just misunderstanding it, or do you would you agree with Craig, or um, what, what do you think of that uh, sort of statement? Is it um, so? So I, I've seen it in one place mm-hmm. uh, in terms of Craig, and if I remember right, where I saw it, he was equivocating, but not fallaciously equivocating because he was equivocating because he was quite clear about it. So there, there's two different senses of extraordinary. Uh, again, Laplace uses it as strangeness. And so uh, in Bayesian terms, then an extraordinary claim would be one whose prior probability is very low. And then if that's true, then to make the claim more probable than not, you need strong evidence to counterbalance that. So I, I, if that's what Sagan is saying, and, I, and then I, I think Craig has to say, well, of course, uh, but here, but Craig specifically takes extraordinary to be something connected to miraculous, mm-hmm. that uh, something out of nature, extraordinary. So if that's the case, and if you build enough assumptions into it, uh, then you can raise your prior probability. Sure, I don't think, I don't think Craig's saying anything false or contentious. I. And, and and again, he was he seemed pretty honest, if I recall, about about that meaning of it. I just I wonder if uh, you know if if anybody who, if everybody who reads Craig is going to realize that those two distinct meanings are going on. So if Craig says that's false, if by which you mean out of nature uh, or miraculous, uh, then yes, there are situations in which that would certainly be true. Uh, but then the romp's going to lie in whether we should accept all those presuppositions we build in to make it so the prior probabilities there are not low. Maybe you can comment real quickly then on um, just your thoughts on Draper's and Swinburne's perspective on evidence, um, since you kind of brought up probability. So the idea that a, a certain piece of data raises the pro- uh, the probability of a given hypothesis. Sorry, what do you mean by comment on? Just in terms of how we, that is an approach to philosophy of religion? Yeah, well, like what are your thoughts on their perspective of evidence? Do you agree with kind of their, that overall structure of, or the thought of about what evidence is? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, uh, well, we should be a little careful. Uh, evidence is a really broad term. And yeah. so, but if we're talking about of evidence of things we can't immediately perceive, uh, and that we know there are reasons to doubt. Uh, I think that's the way you have to go. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, as a hypothesis to be tested uh, in terms of probabilities is the best way to do it. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily agree on that if, again, we're ta- if, if we're talking about evidence in general. Um, but certainly if we're talking about kind of the God hypothesis specifically. Excellent. Ben, did you have any other questions about that section uh, regarding... The methodology? I did not have any more questions about that section. Um, I think now would be a good time to kind of transition into areas of natural theology, uh, areas like cosmological arguments and teleological arguments and um, questions around that sort. Uh, Were there any in particular, Ryan, that you wanted to bring up first? Did you see where you wanted to start in particular? Yeah, actually, I, I did want to ask one question before we jump right into the arguments concerning uh, uh, you have a section, Professor Lorkowski, on the burden of proof, which I thought actually was really interesting. 
again, there's sort of the different levels at which you can see these debates happening, sort of the, the, the professional level and the lay level. But at least at the lay level, there seems to be a lot of um, fierce debate on who has the burden of proof. And I thought you did a good job in that section. But I was wondering one thing, because of kind of the baggage that's surrounded the term burden of proof, maybe, um, should we abandon that terminology sort of in favor of talking about, since you, we were talking about probabilities just a, a little bit ago, should we just talk about low prior probabilities and things like that? Or is, is there anything to sort of the language we use there? What are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. And I'm going to start with my traditional Weasley answer of the context. <laughs> Uh -huh. um, but but first and foremost, the bur the burden of proof is proof is a dialectical tool. Sure. Um, that's that, and it's distinct from prior probabilities. Uh, you cannot equate burden of proof and prior probability because uh, prior probability is just a quantified probability before some new evidence is taken into account. Right. And so, the the only question to prior probability is prior to what. And mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't merit any type of objective answer, uh, but is it's going to be relative relative to some default position. Sure. Uh, now, if you want to talk about intrinsic probability, uh, that's an interesting thing to talk about, mm -hmm. but then you're drastically constricting the discussion. You basically have to push it all the way back to metaphysics mm -hmm. uh, rather than you know, taking into account history and the sciences uh, and even things like uh, number of believers, et cetera. Not, so not just evidence on one side, but on both sides. And so I, I guess the short answer is no, because, yeah, we can't equate burden of proofs from prior probability, and intrinsic probability just isn't useful enough. Um, but I think it's interesting. You, you were talking about so much fierce debate, mm -hmm. and I, I wonder how much of that is a genuine belief and how much of it is something we talked about earlier that somebody just feels they have to defend their position at any cost mm -hmm. because the original uh, reading group that, you know, we, that I worked out this definition of burden of proof with the minister who was in the room agreed that the, <laughs> that the burden of proof is on the theist for the reasons we give. And uh, I tried to give kind of these very theist friendly reasons why the, why the burden would be, on the theist, but uh, obviously not everybody agrees. So. Right. Yeah. One, one thing I did like was your strategy for establishing the burden of proof, though I did have one question because you brought up that um, uh, you recommend using an imagined fictional uh, idealized third party uh, in the book. And, and you say specifically that this removes the worry of subjectivity because the person uh, is, is supposed to be idealized. Um, but I was just wondering, that brought up a question of, since imagining that person relies on each person's subjective ability uh, to imagine such an idealization, you know, what if you get people who can't agree on what this idealized observer uh, uh, would be like or, or what they would find most reasonable at the start? Um, does that kind of show that there is some sort of uh, persisting problem of subjectivity? I'm going to give two Weasley answers and then a substantive one. Okay. <laughs> first, the, 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 the first Weasley one is there's a sense in which everything is subjective. Sure. Uh, but I don't think recognizing that is, an unhelp is a helpful caveat. And so the question becomes, is this kind of the problematic subjectivity or not? Uh, right, right. And so the, the, the second Weasley answer is, 
Uh, remember the, the my starting comment about the burden of proof. This is a dialectical tool. Okay. The, the goal is common ground. Sure. And um, if you can't find uh, common ground in these ways, it might just not be there. And mm -hmm. so uh, to say we can't agree on a burden of proof just means that there's significantly less common ground than you might have thought. And maybe uh, that realization is important and will also uh, structure how the discussion goes. Um, the, the substantive comment, I might add, uh, is really uh, when we uh, talking about focusing on agreements, and I try to do this in three steps. One, we uh, we start with an abstraction. Well, let's if we get to granting what the burden of proof is, independent of the God debates, that is, in, in other contexts, um, then that's a huge step because then we can articulate what it means to have the burden of proof. Mm -hmm. uh, and I feel like in some of the examples I gave, such as, you know, 30 novices arguing against Neil Grass Tyson, right. uh, we're probably going to agree on where the burden of proof is and why. And so I think that's a huge uh, first step. Uh, the second step is just it's really important to, and I know I'm beating a dead horse a little here, but to recognize that the burden of proof is not the same as belief. It's not the same as probability. Uh, and it's perfectly consistent to say, I know my belief is right, but grant that you bear the burden of proof um, because we have different experiences. Uh, uh -huh. the, the, there's in, innumerable contexts in which we would want to say that. And I think once you start separating burden of proof from things like prior probabilities, it, it, you, you get people a little bit back off of the defensive and hopefully towards a meaningful dialogue. Sure. Uh, but then the third step I'm going to say is, well, let, let's talk about my specific reasons that I, I give three very specific reasons that I think together say the burden is on the theist uh, is, well, they posit more because we both agree on a universe since the start of the Big Bang, and they add some extra stuff. Right. Uh, and just more posits uh, means uh, more claims. Uh, and then I, I argued that the positive existential claims always bear the burden if they're not normally accessible and not supported by scholarly consensus. Those are not applying to theistic claims, so there should be a burden there for positive existential claims. Uh, but then... The third one, of course, is the claim that it's radically unlike experience. So if if somebody's going to say, wait a minute, I, I disagree with, with this here that's too subjective, uh, I, I, the language I'm going to use is, well, I think the idealized observer is going to say, uh, Keteris paribus, more posits are uh, going to have the burden. Keteris paribus, the uh, objective observer, is going to say positive existential claims not normally accessible or supported by scholarly consensus bear the burden. Uh, and Keteris Paribus claims, unlike common experience, bear the burden. Now, um, so if the, if the objectivity, uh, sorry, subjectivity problem there disagrees with one of those three, that's a great thing to talk about. Um, I, but, but I think if there's any disagreement there, it's only going to be on the third, but uh, who knows? Do you, do you um, think, yeah, so. Do you, do you think a theist could push back on the normally accessible part, you know, like Craig, for instance, referencing the census divinitatis sort of idea, or would that not really count? Well, because that's not normally accessible. I believe I addressed that one directly. Okay. Uh, 
because it, it's not the case that all positive existential claims bear, bear a burden of proof, but only only ones that people who disagree with you can't get somehow or mm -hmm. that are uh, pushing up against a mountain of scholarship. So right. uh, and notice that's a that's a perfectly consistent position. Uh, if Craig says, I have census divinitatis and you don't, mm -hmm. it would be really weird if Craig said, and the burden is on you to prove that I, <laughs> to prove that, uh, right. uh, you know, so that's the, uh, I, th I think that the, the very kind of intrinsic personal private nature of that shouldn't be a problem. And I think it's kind of a sign of defensiveness of it. It's very similar with some religious experience. If I have an absolutely indubitable defeater proof religious experience, Mm -hmm. There is no reason I should expect that I can convince you of that <laughs> if you don't share all of my starting assumptions. I was more thinking of like if a theist said, uh, you know, this isn't a normally accessible uh, sort of experience and the believer comes back, says, well, yeah, it is. You you have a census divinitatis as well. Uh, you're uh, you're just, I don't know, suppressing it would be a common thing I've, I've heard from some theists. Well, Yes, but you have to distinguish between the faculty uh, and the actual experience, right? So, so sure. replace census divinitatis with eyes. <laughs> and if one person says, I see a clown in the room, and the other 50 say, I don't, uh -huh. the burden is still on that person. Uh, and so... Yeah, that's fair. That's a good point. That's a good point. And, and, and again, just a reminder, I'm talking burden. I'm not talking uh, prior probabilities or, right, or right. truth for that matter. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one more thing just about uh, this burden of proof idea, and then we can get to the uh, arguments, the ontological arguments. Um, there's a, a thing here where uh, I'll, I'll read a quote here. It says, um, in response to uh, an article, uh, or in his response article to uh, critiques of logic and theism, J.H. Sobel writes, Hume, Mackey, and I find evidence against the prior probability of theism when we think about the barely comprehensible character of an infinitely powerful and knowledgeable, perfectly free and good, everlasting and bodiless creator of all things. And when we think about how, unlike all creators of which we have uncontentious experience, the intentions of whom are immediately efficacious no further than the extremities of their bodies, this one would operate with intentions that were immediately efficacious uh, everywhere and anywhere. Uh, could you elaborate on this point a bit? Um, why do so many reputable atheists and non-theist philosophers find the prior probability of theism to be so low? Uh, sure, but again, not to sound like a broken record, remember there, there's nothing, and I mean nothing, inconsistent or even problematic Mm -hmm. about an atheist not finding the prior probability low or a theist finding the prior probability low because we're interested in final probability. Um, yeah. But having said that, it is very relevant. Uh, but I just want to make sure we're not just getting into our defensive postures. Uh, sure. but, but I think there's probably two points to make here. Okay. So there, there, there are worries about the compossibility of all these traits. Um, and... Uh, we could really put this in two ways, and I discussed this some in Chapter 10. Uh, you, you could say, and I think there's some good reasons to think, you could just say certain depictions of a god of theism are incoherent. Mm -hmm. uh, if that's the case, their prior probability and final probability are zero. Right. Uh, having said that, there's this 
important secondary effect of this kind of thing is even if you don't take that uh, far of you, when you're giving incredibly long, complex explanations as to why something is coherent, mm-hmm. that reduces the prior probability, uh, or at least it should, because any step in that explanation could go wrong. And so the more claims you're having to tack on, the, the lower the prior probability. And so when we talk about barely comprehensible, you're saying, okay, I'm not saying that the prior probability is zero. I'm not saying this is incoherent, but we're recognizing what the theist should be recognizing uh, is there's a whole lot of work going on together to try to get that into a a reasonable, coherent picture. Uh, And that drastically lowers the prior probability. And the reason I say theists should admit that is because I have <laughs> a virtual wall of books of theists trying to do just that. Yeah. Uh, and so clearly it's not an easy positive and that ha- does have some translational value and implications into prior probabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other thing to remember, notice he's he mentions human Mackey Right, our, our probabilities, our prior probabilities, are based on prior experience. That's where it, that's where they come from. Mm-hmm. Which means if something is distinctly unlike everything else, especially in terms of cause and effect, uh, that is going to have an important and detrimental impact on the, the, its probability. Right. Now, with regards to uh, so, kind of getting out now towards the arguments here. Um, uh, uh, it seems that since the fall of logical positivism in the 60s, uh, theists and Christian philosophers have had something of like an, you know, we, an intellectual renaissance in developing sort of new arguments and justifications. And, and lots of philosophers like Quentin Smith and Michael Martin and Richard Gale uh, concede that theists have done a pretty great job using tools of like contemporary analytic philosophy and logical analysis and probability theory and, and just a lot of rigor. Um, and I'm thinking of people maybe like Alex Pruss, Josh Rasmussen, and Robert Coons uh, in developing you know, these arguments. Could you talk maybe about some of the more interesting developments and arguments you've seen on the theistic side and, and how uh, are atheist philosophers responding to these recent developments in uh, natural theology? Um, I can try. I, I fear my answer might disappoint you. Um, <laughs> so especially with people like Proust and Rasmussen, from what I've read of them, they're just a whole, they're, I shouldn't say just, because there's value in what they do. Um, these are new, sophisticated versions of old arguments. Sure. Um, you know, think of uh, Rasmussen's uh, modal argument for contingency. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's nothing that is intrinsically bad about saying this is a sophisticated version of an old argument. Uh, you know, think of uh, I think that Hume, for his time, was utterly groundbreaking in his presentation of the problem of evil in the dialogues. Uh, but I think that uh, once we had a little more apparatus to work with, uh, the contemporary versions are much better. Um, I think that's a good thing. I think uh, giving sophisticated versions of these arguments is better. But but there, there's kind of two concerns. One. The, the, the net effect seems to be saying better, which means you could get rid of a lot of kind of the more trivial objections, but a lot of the big kind of rejections of assumptions of the old arguments still work just as well or, uh, or mutatis mutandis work just as well on the newer arguments. 
Uh, but then there's also kind of this worry that uh, by by introducing all this extra apparatus, depending on what that apparatus is, you give a lot more places to agree to disagree. So you, you might think the net effect is, well, atheistic natural theology then can either play the game or not. And if they do play the game, uh, that is try to refute the new arguments using the new apparatus, well, that, that refutation is going to be stronger, uh, for sure, because then you're kind of beating the theist of their own game. Sure. Uh, but if you uh, refuse to play that game, then you're, there's just not anything new or interesting there. So let me just give a, a quick example of what I'm talking about. So the Chris and Rasmussen in Necessary Existence, of course, they help themselves to a lot of S5 apparatus, uh, just like planning a dozen of his mobile ontological argument. And if you grant all of those assumptions, there's might be some new and fancy ways of getting at old conclusions. But ultimately, uh, I'm a bit of a, well, more than a bit of, I tend to be very, very careful and try to posit as few metaphysical commitments as possible. I try, uh, I try to kind of, keep austerity with uh, metaphysical commitments. And, you know, I, I'm not convinced that that use of S5 is correct. And I don't say that because of uh, philosophy of religion concerns. I say that due to logic concerns. Uh, and uh, I don't like that, that just about everybody who uses S5 metaphysically makes two additional assumptions that are unargued for. Uh, I, I have trouble with if trans world identity is even possible with whether we could use intuition to establish uh, modal possibility. Yeah. Th th there's just five new assumptions that I reject for reasons that have nothing to do with, with whether I believe in a higher power or not. Mm -hmm. And so you're, you're kind of back into what, uh, like some of the cosmological arguments. Well, if you're willing to adopt these very, theist-friendly assumptions, uh, mm -hmm. there's some interesting ground to be said there. It's just, I personally uh, just just don't do that. And and again, I do that for reasons that have to do with what I think is true and correct uh, and what are not. And, you know, the dictum of logic is you must be more certain of your premises than the conclusion. And I'm just not uh, when, when, when those kind of maneuvers are invoked. This kind of reminds me a bit of a... Um... Felipe Leon's, uh, he had a discussion with Josh Rasmussen or, the, you know, they made a book out of it. I don't know if, uh, if you've read it or not, but, um, anyway, uh, one of, uh, Leon's criticisms was basically recommending, I think he called it modal skepticism. Is that kind of what you're getting at here is just sort of being cautious on these sort of, uh, very abstract matters that are sort of outside of our normal, so far outside of our normal intuitions that uh, we have to be very careful. Um, so I, I, I think I, I, I smushed together two criticisms. One, sure. I always adopt a, a posture of what I always call the metaphysical humility, sure. where it's if I don't point. know, I'm not going to use it in an argument. Yeah. Um, but, but I think I actually have stronger reasons against S5 than that specifically. Okay. Uh, so, you know, it, with that S five stuff, it's not just I don't know. It's I have I have some reasons to think that no, you can't use it like that. But but both apply that when we're bringing these new tools to bear on 
arguments, and this is not simply true of only theists, this is true of atheists as well, right. um, then we just, uh, we, we run the chance of just losing our common ground mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. instead talk about presuppositions. Right. Well, specifically then, because you, uh, since it's a good uh, segue into the ontological arguments in particular, because you, you had mentioned some of those, could you maybe, uh, for our listeners, kind of walk us through some of the common features of uh, the ontological argument? And and then also, I mean, despite maybe its failures, why do you think that um, even with like contemporary uh, uh, philosophers like uh, Oppie and Sobel, you know, they seem to spend a good amount of time addressing it. Um, is there a reason you think it's remained so popular? Yeah, so I mostly follow Kant's distinctions here, but uh, yeah. ontological arguments are kind of occupy this weird logical space. <laughs> they try to, uh, they argue a priori, uh, right. basically that essence implies existence in exactly one case, that uh, uh, given our depiction of a god, what, what god's essential features would be, god must exist. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, there's a whole lot of different ontological arguments, of course. Uh, but but as, notice as soon as we even say that, there's you know, there's just people who pump the brakes and say, I, "That's that's just that you're never going to convince me that your premises are more certain <laughs> than the conclusion with the assumptions you would have to make to go to somehow a priori conclude an existence claim." Mm -hmm. But and then the second, sorry, and the second question was. Yeah, do you, is there a reason you think it's kind of held on as so popular? I mean, you got guys like oh, yeah. Oppie still kind of taking a lot of time to address these arguments. Sure. Uh, so first of all, uh, I'm definitely part of that crowd. Uh, my sure. master's thesis was on a couple of versions of the ontological arguments. Oh, very cool. Uh, so so uh, if we're talking about it, uh, they're fascinating. They're really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um and I don't mean from a psychological perspective. I've known atheists who said they're interesting when you try to figure out why somebody would believe one. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not adopting that position, uh, but I'm kind of sympathetic to those who do. Uh -huh. uh, but, but you learn a lot about your own metaphysical and modal commitments by working on them. You really do. Um, sure. And so I, I think that's one of the reasons they're so popular. That's certainly why people, I would think, like uh, uh, Sobel and Oppie, Mm -hmm. uh, are so interested in them, but maybe not. I don't want to get into their heads too much and put words in their mouth. <laughs> but I think there's an important second one that people, uh, that, that there's kind of the strategic part that of the major argument families for theism that we that we usually identify, ontological arguments are the only ones that get you to theism, capital T. Uh, more mm. generally, they're the only ones that get you to a good God. Right. So cosmological arguments by themselves can't even get you too intelligent. Design arguments can get you intelligent, but not good and not on. Right. And uh, I think that philosophically, more and more, the theist might be getting painted into a corner a little bit here. If you want to say there's a God of theism, there's a whole lot of literature why the inferences from the other two are really hard. And there's a whole lot of reasons to think uh, revealed reasons aren't going to work terribly well. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's that's something that can be maybe alluring and maybe leads people to put more emphasis on it than than its merits merit. Sure. You did bring up also in, in your book um, sort of a new criticism on the ontological argument, which uh, I believe you called it uh, negate. And was it so first was that your is that your criticism or is it just a new one that you uh, came across and wanted to include? 
Um, uh, as far as I know, I haven't seen it anywhere else. I, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody else had the idea, but uh, uh-huh. yeah, well, that was that was one I wrote up on my. Excellent. Uh, and just for for those who haven't read it, I, I think. Uh, I, I divided the ontological arguments into the reductios, kind of the Anselmian, right. um, the Cartesian perfect being type, and then uh, and the modal ones. And mm-hmm. I think the historical criticisms really tend to get rid of all of them but the modal ones, and so that's why I spent the most effort on the modal. So in terms of that specific criticism, this, this is one of those kind of games you could play when you're talking about uh, modal logic uh, is, I, I said, well, imagine there's a there's a being very similar to the god of theism, maybe even the god of theism, uh-huh. but that manifests its goodness uh, along lines that uh, Roe, Schellenberg, et cetera, might have suggested. That is, uh, as a maximally perfect being uh, that is necessarily existent, uh, that being uh, soothes us once in a while. It, it wants its creations to be happy and know that it cares about them. Uh, no matter how hard things get. Uh, and so instead of leaving the ambiguity to ancient texts that does this unequivocally appearing to us in our dreams to let us know it's there and watching, et cetera. Negates cutesy, but it stood for necessarily existent God amendment to the theistic entity. So here's, here's the problem. Uh, if I want to lean on modal ontological arguments, well, okay, we know we are not assuaged in this way, or at least the vast majority of us are not. What do we do with that information? Uh, well, since negate is posited as a necessary being, one of two things has to happen. Since it's not existent, that either means that being is impossible or we shouldn't be using S5 in this way. And, and then either way seems to be pretty much fatal for modal ontological arguments. Um, because if I want to defend uh, the modal ontological argument, then I have to explain why negate is not just not actual, but impossible. Uh-huh. Uh, and and it's really a pickle for theists to try to, to somehow make that claim. So uh, that, that that's the general broad brushstroke concern. How is a theist going to say that being is impossible? Uh, if you rely on, well, there's something good about us not knowing for a certain, well, then you have a problem with religious text because there's a lot of people whose divine experience seems to have made them certain in that in right. that way. And so that seems to entail, well, then that type of unequivocal revelation is impossible. Ooh, don't want to say that. <laughs> um, right. I think the more plausible way is to say, well, just... You know, we can't use we can't use intuition as a guide to possibility, and we shouldn't use S five metaphysically. That's that's the lesson I take from it. But. Yeah. Ben, did you have any other things you wanted to talk about as far as the cosmological arguments? Or sorry, I'm not uh, the ontological. Excuse me. Um. Yeah. So I'll, I'll probably have more to say about cosmological arguments because I kind of I, I'm known for having kind of a not so great attitude towards ontological logical arguments because I just I, I just don't feel like they get they get us anywhere. It seems like, you know, the theist at the end of the day is going to insist that our intuitions can get us to this, you know, metaphysically necessary being, whereas skeptics can just say, look, no, such a being seems impossible for whatever reasons and then it doesn't it follows that it doesn't exist and that it necessarily doesn't exist so just as a piece of natural theology it just doesn't seem like it can resolve disagreements within the dialectic 
of the question of God's existence. It's just disagreements are just too deep and we don't have any real criteria to help us, you know, figure out who's closer to the truth than the other. You know, there's just no discriminating factor. But anyways, <laughs> I, I'm actually very sympathetic to that position. I don't know if you saw that spot in the book. I was talking about general concerns with the inference for that reason and some more why you might just dismiss the ontological argument project. And I, I think I said in parentheses, and if the reader finds this uh, these general objections decisive, then I applaud their good sense and they should feel free to skip ahead. <laughs> yes, I remember that part. <laughs> I, I, as a funny anecdote, I don't usually do this, but... Uh, I was driving in Chicago once, and I, I was behind a car who had a bumper sticker that was just an S5 with a little halo over it. And, I, and it struck me as funny for, for the reasons we're talking about, but it was also the fact that there have to be like a thousand people in the world who get that joke, and then 200 who find it funny. <laughs> it made me very curious about who was driving, and I figured it was probably somebody new. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, it seems to mostly come down to our competing intuitions, kind of like you were talking about, Ben, and that's hard when people have such diverging intuitions with regards to things like that. Yeah, and, and I think that's why in my project generally, my first step is always to try to find common ground because I think that's where good dialogue and mutual respect are going to come from. Right. But I really have trouble doing that with with contemporary with ontological arguments. Um, sure. Maybe it's a personal yeah, defect. Exactly I just can't find. It's so hard to find that common ground, and when you try to find it, it just you realize just how deep those disagreements are. Yeah, and I can and. and I could probably add on a uh, just kind of pile on to a couple of more of the assumptions that I find implausible, but perhaps our time is better spent on more interesting arguments. At least right. interesting to their impact on belief. Yeah. Uh, well, that kind of leads us then to I, I've always found cosmological arguments particularly interesting just because I happen to be fairly interested in. Um, uh, cosmology, particularly the mathematical side of things there. But do you find uh, any particular in terms of cosmological arguments, uh, do you find any to be particularly the strongest versus uh, maybe some of that are the, the weakest? So I know that there's several that are laid out by some various thinkers like Alex Pruss again. And um, there's, there's the, I think uh, they're broken down usually into like there's the Thomistic and there's the Kalam sort and the Leibnizian. Do you have any um, sort of uh, favorites or ones that you find are the most worthy of uh, addressing? Uh, yeah, and I, and I think it, it really pretty closely ties to what we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the Thomistic are the weakest because just because they have to make too many metaphysical assumptions that are I will, uh, contentious. I won't say questionable, but uh, I don't. I'm I don't think that you can establish, uh, or I don't think it has been established that believing infinite regresses are possible is irrational. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance. Uh, but on the flip side, uh, I certainly don't fault theists in thinking uh, or, or maybe non-theists who have that belief about infinite regresses. But again, uh, what, what approaching from my position of uh, metaphysical humility, mm -hmm. um, I, I'm not anywhere near certain enough of that type of premise to use it in, in an argument. But then also the yeah, the Preston Rasmus must work end up using yes five sometimes, which I've already mm -hmm. set aside and things like that. And I just think 
Uh, you know, I just think they're the weakest, not because they're poorly argued. I think they're argued incredibly rigorously, but they just they're they're just speaking too much of a different language. If they're if they're not preaching to the metaphysical choir, uh, they're just going to have no impact on your belief. Uh, I think for the very similar reasons that Kalam ends up being the strongest, because it makes the fewest uh, metaphysical assumptions. Uh, the Leibnizian probably is all somewhere in between, uh, just in terms of assumptions. Yeah. Ben, you said you might have some specific thoughts on this one. Did you want to ask any on this one before I get too far into it? So I find that interesting um, only because I, I I guess I find arguments from contingency um, more interesting than something like the Kalam cosmological argument just because I find that, I, I don't know, I guess I, I think I sympathize more with something like a principle of sufficient reason than I do with something like a causal principle like in the Kalam, it, it, it appeals to a principle like whatever begins to exist as a cause. I don't know. I just find that the principle of sufficient reason to be more intuitive in the sense that, like, I feel like I, we can be skeptical of that causal premise um, pretty liberally, but being skeptical of something like the principle of sufficient reason, it seems like they're, you know, some... Being skeptical towards it seems like it's just more difficult. Um, do you think that it's easier to avoid something like a principle of sufficient reason or easier to avoid something like the causal principle in the Kalam cosmological argument? Which Where, where do you think the dialectical stands there? Well, uh, one, one thing I, I think is those two end up bleeding together a lot more than... Uh, maybe maybe I, I don't think they're as distinct as you do. Uh, I think that the Kalam ultimately has to boil down to is a theistic explanation for a Big Bang better than either a natural explanation or no explanation. And so notice, uh, as soon as we frame our evaluation of the Kalam in that way, we're actually back to contingency, but we're doing it without... Uh, without the assumptions built in uh, to the premises. In terms of the principle of sufficient reason itself, I think I'm a fan in general, but it breaks down uh, It breaks down when we get to first causes. Uh, I think that the principle of sufficient reason, the reason I have to believe it is true, has to do with my experience. And my experience doesn't have anything to do with first causes or ultimate causes. It has to do with kind of experience change in the world given the laws of physics. Uh, and so I believe the principle as stated uh, is going to be justified by my experience more than metaphysical intuitions if I want to get anywhere, but my experience doesn't allow me to apply it to first causes. Very similarly, uh, I think that there's probably too many assumptions involved in trying to figure out if something's contingent or not. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, I, I think, something that I take to be a lot more difficult than uh, Proust and Rasmussen do in uh, Necessary Existence. I worry about some of their applications of contingency. Um, but, but very similarly, just to go back to how I started this discussion, that's also going to apply to Craig's premise one, things that begin to exist. Well, what does that mean? I've never seen anything begin to exist. I've been, seen things change form and organization. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think the evaluations are, are very close uh, just in, in my own mind. And so I think that maybe maybe they're not as far apart as, as 
Uh, maybe we have a little bit of a disagreement there. You uh, let I ask that question. That was yeah. such an interesting way of tackling that. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to, in line with that, I, I was wondering if maybe you could, um, and you've kind of addressed this, but maybe go a little bit more over. Uh, so if we have to stop at something like, a big bang singularity, assuming that's, you know, a, a real thing, uh, based on our current physics or, 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 a possibility based on that. Cause I know a lot of theists would question, especially on the front of contingency, you know, that that would be an adequate stopping point. Um, so maybe you could just address a little bit more on, as to why that would be sort of uh, rationally acceptable to take something like a, a physical singularity, which seems to be uh, a contingent thing, um, why that would be an appropriate place to stop our explanation. Um, I could try. Uh, <laughs> so first of all, uh, something we always must be guarding against uh, in not just in philosophy, religion, and all our reasoning, I want X to be true, therefore X is true. Right. And uh, I'm not saying theists do this, but 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 as soon as you say, because I demand an explanation and because I want an explanation, nothing says, therefore, there is an explanation other than your desires and your metaphysical intuitions. Sure. Uh, and I think it's perfectly fine to agree to disagree there. I don't think, uh, I, I, th I think the, the cosmological arguments offer a lot more about your worldview regarding explanation than they do about higher power. Mm -hmm. uh, and but but I think it's I think it's important to recognize that's the real disagreement. I don't I don't think I don't think Craig is irrational for saying that uh, uh, some sort of conscious being causing the Big Bang is more plausible, uh, or he finds more metaphysically satisfying or satisfying to his intuitions than some of the naturalistic alternatives. Mm -hmm. uh, but. I do expect someone to admit when you're just talking about intuitions and desires and notions of explanation uh, and to realize that those are not universal and sacrosanct and that you are there is going to be disagreement about those types of things. In terms of the singularity a little more specifically is one of the reasons I, so in, in addition to metaphysical humility, I also try very hard to, to talk about uh, or I should say refrain from talking about, things that science might well weigh in on here soon. I, I can talk about provisional things about what I think about the Big Bang, but uh, I'm not going to let metaphysics trump the sciences. And if we can understand more about what it is and whether it needs a cause or not and all of that stuff, uh, we'll have a better understanding of the universe. And I certainly don't want to let my metaphysical intuitions block that and for reasons independent of the non-debates. I liked your mention of just that humility as before in that our, you know, if we're going back to like fundamental physics and things like that, our, our intuitions just don't reach that far. You know, not that we don't have intuitions, but the uh, reliability of them, I guess we have to be much more careful in terms of these sort of very grand <laughs> ultimate things. Yeah. In, in the book, I put it in terms of less weird yeah, because listen. neither is normal or plausible or expected. I mean, once once we get into that, like, right. you know, even start talking about space itself expanding or there being no time in the literal B-theory sense of time or space at the singularity. And these are what math tells me that I'm not sure I could conceive in the normal sense of conceiving, but I have good reasons to think are true. And, right. and as soon as we're starting to talk about stuff that far removed from our experience, 
Right. I, I'm not going to say anything goes, but I think there's multiple and inconsistent reasonable <laughs> interpretations of what we could say about these things. Uh, and I'm not an agnostic generally, but I feel that agnosticism about that could be okay. Right. Right. Uh, speaking of uh, uh, B theory and such, a, uh, this is just a curious question. Do you have a stance on the A theory versus B theory versus, I know there's some other, a couple other types of theories, but uh, is that something that you have a particular thought on or is that more just uh, like you uh, kind of said, agnostic about it? I, I think, uh, so I'm a supporter of B theory mm -hmm. when it comes to observation. Uh, okay. The B theory is the only meaningful notion of time when we're talking about observed and observables. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm an agnostic about whether there can be an observer-independent uh, absolute A theory of time. Mm -hmm. uh, by, and by, I, I just, since I since I talk about cancellation agnosticism and skeptical agnosticism, I guess I'll say I'm a skeptical agnostic about it. I <laughs> I don't see any principal reason for ruling it out or ruling it in. Fair enough. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, well, uh, before we move on to the next uh, argument section here, uh, maybe you could just briefly uh, outline uh, uh, maybe Graham Oppie's approach to the cosmological arguments uh, in terms of uh, he, of course, thinks that naturalism offers a simpler explanation to theism when it comes to uh, explaining sort of our data in, uh, in terms of origins, existence. What do you what do you think of that? Do you like his approach? So it, it, it's interesting that, that you mentioned that because I, I almost had an oppie section in the burden of proof section and talking about prior probabilities. You know, that's mm -hmm. um, th those those seem very relevant in certain ways, but I, but I suppose it depends on uh, what the rest of your naturalistic story is. Mm -hmm. uh, let me give you one example. So, well, there's uh, the oscillating model of the universe theory right. that says big bang big crunch big bang big crunch big bang big crunch mm -hmm. uh and yet and yet the, the math's not really there the, mm -hmm. the, the, at least as far as i know that well if that's true this is our last expansion because there won't be a big crunch unless the laws of physics don't don't continue to obtain as they do now mm -hmm. and so that version of naturalism might not be as simple and there, uh, and Big Bang uh, coming up from nowhere might not be as simple. Uh, or uh, so. So uh, I'm not saying it isn't. By the way, I'm, I'm very careful in using my modal language here. Sure. Uh, but but you do have to say a little more. You do have to say a little. Uh, I think if you're taking Oppie's approach. Okay. And, and, and this is what I see as the, the biggest drawback of it. If you're taking Oppie's approach and you want to make that claim. It, you, you can't be an agnostic about it like I am. <laughs> that, that, mm -hmm. um, that, that you have to pick which version of your naturalistic explanation of the universe you are comparing. Um, mm -hmm. And I think whichever selection you make, the theists are going to have some things to say in response. So I think that uh, I, I don't think there's anything unreasonable about the approach, but, but we do have to realize there's, you're, you are kind of opening yourself up in that way. Sure. Mm -hmm.